0: There's a line in the Bruce Springsteen song, My Hometown. They're closing down the textile mill across the railroad tracks. Foreman says, these jobs are going, boys, and they ain't coming back. The album on which this song appears, Born in the USA, came out in 1984. Springsteen caught the mood of the country at that time reflecting concerns about the loss of good-paying, blue-collar jobs. Since then, the fate of less-educated workers, those without a college degree, who may have been working in factories or in service sector jobs, has only gotten worse. As a consequence, income inequality has risen, and this has been linked to the rise of political populism and the surge in so-called deaths of despair from suicide, drug overdoses, and alcohol-related illnesses. What has happened to the wages of lower-income Americans, and why? And what is the future of work in America? One of the foremost economists researching these questions is my guest on EconiFact Chats today, Professor David Otter of MIT. David has published many influential articles documenting the decline in the fortunes of lower-income workers. He's co-director of the NBER Labor Studies Program and co-leader of both the MIT Work of the Future Task Force and the JPAL Work of the Future Experimental Initiative. In 2020, he was presented with a Heinz Award, considered to be among the largest individual achievement prizes in the world. David, welcome to Aconifact Chats.
1: Thanks very much, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So let's start out with some statistics about wage inequality. In the Richard Eli lecture that you gave to the American Economic Association, you identified three distinct periods relating to wage inequality over the past half century. What were these and what happened during them?
1: Sure. So the first one, I, in my lecture, I talk about 1963 to 1972, but in fact, you could start really by the end of World War II to 1972. And that's a period of, of rapid. Rising living standards, rising real wages at every education level, and so uh, growth was uh, you know evenly shared and very uh, and very quick. Uh, we it was the fastest period of of uh, kind of U.S. productivity growth and income growth in in our recorded history. Uh, then in 1973, for reasons that economists don't fully understand even today, we were hit by a series of shocks, particularly the uh, the oil price shocks. And uh, throughout the Western world, productivity growth slowed dramatically. And in that period, uh, from basically uh, the early 1970s to about 1980, wages stagnated at almost every level. And so we had previously been all growing together. We then all stagnated together. And then starting around 1980, there was a great divergence in the earnings levels by education uh, with uh, those with college and post-college degrees seeing uh, steep real increases in earnings, and those with high school or lower education seeing sharp falls, particularly among men. Uh, and I don't just mean in relative terms, but in absolute terms. And really, those four decades, that that period starting in 1980, has, has continued more or less to the present. Uh, the inequality has not reversed itself. Uh, the earnings of uh, highly educated workers are much higher than they were before. The earnings of less educated workers are somewhat lower. And uh, uh, and so it's been a period, not just of rising inequality, but falling real earnings levels as we measure them among uh, the majority of adults who do not have a four-year college degree.
0: So I want to emphasize that point. You know, you can think of rising inequality where people at the bottom are doing better, but people at the top are doing much, much better. But this is actually the people at the bottom are doing worse.
1: Yes. And that is a big unpleasant surprise. And you know another way to say it is the median worker, the person of, you know right at the middle of the pack, their real earnings have barely budged in the last four decades, even though the education level of the median worker has risen a lot. In other words, the median worker is not the same person over four decades, right? They're, they're much more skilled than they used to be. And yet their real earnings, as far as we measure them, haven't risen. Now, people can quibble about that and say, oh, no, no, you're undercounting all the productivity gains. You know, you don't, you don't, you're not adequately accounting for all the benefits that have come to our consumer society. And that's possible. It's possible. It's, it's hard to make these comparisons with great confidence. But if we're understanding the gain at the median, we're also understanding, understating the gain at the top. So the inequality growth would still be real, and the divergence of living standards would be uh, equally dramatic.
0: Right. Both the median worker and the rich worker have access to video games now that weren't available in 1980.
1: Exactly. And air conditioning and mobile phones and safer cars and uh, better medical services. Many, many things have improved. We We shouldn't lose sight of that altogether.
0: So in your Eli lecture, you point out there are many potential explanations for this can you mention some of the candidate causes?
1: Sure. So I, I would you know, call them you know, technological, uh, global, and institutional. Um, they all relate. The technological causes would be changes in the structure of jobs, particularly driven by automation and the, and the uh, kind of rapid advances of information technology that have had the effect of kind of hollowing out the middle set of jobs.
0: So what's a, you know, what's a real world example
1: of that? Sure. Uh, So, you know, if you think of the way office work has changed, 40 years ago, you'd have, you know, many people answering phones, doing typing, copying, photocopying, you know, duplicating, filing, et cetera. And now those activities are still done, done, but they're done by machines. And so in a typical office, you have many, many fewer administrative support workers. Those who remain are actually usually highly skilled, they're doing complex tasks. But that was a very important category of work for women without college degrees. For men, you would see a lot of automation in uh, factories, uh, where they've just become much more capital intensive, up to continuing through robotics, and so the kind of you know headcount in a typical production line has fallen substantially. You know, holding output constant, that's one of the factors is technological change. That's a very simplified story. There's much more to it.
0: So people say that in steel mills, the only workers left are the custodians.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think that's <laughs> that's a, a dramatic way trade. of putting it, but definitely right. there are more robots than auto workers on the typical uh, auto assembly line at this point. For example, right.
0: So that's one reason technological change. What are some of the others?
1: Well, second would be globalization. The U.S. in particular has is much more integrated with the world economy than it was four decades ago. Uh, NAFTA, which was passed in 1994, actually did have a fairly substantial consequence on the part, the counties that did the most, that were most exposed to uh, Mexico's exports when the tariffs fell. And then China's rise from 1990 to the present, particularly after 2000, when China uh, joined the World Trade Organization and got permanent most favored nation trading status of the US has been traumatic for US manufacturing employment, uh, led to the loss of at least a million jobs. Uh, Typically, in pretty short order, pretty geographically concentrated way, in a lot of labor intensive manufacturing, like textiles, shoes, uh, toys, um, and a lot of assembled products.
0: So, you're very well known for your China shock paper, and that's had a really big influence in the profession. And one of the things that I found really striking about that is, as you mentioned, it was very geographically concentrated, as were the effects of NAFTA. And so there is sort of a multiplier effect for a community as a whole when it loses jobs. It's not like the job losses were evenly spread, but when a community loses a large number of jobs, they lose their tax base, they start to have more and more kinds of problems with the lack of public finance and so on. So it's really permeating the entire society of these small communities, right?
1: Absolutely. And and it's not... Even just the economic forces, you know, jobs are kind of an anchor of an organizing principle of adult life. They, you know, give you a purpose. They shape your day, a community, uh, you know, friends, esteem. And when people lose work, they don't just lose the income, although they lose that. They they lose many of those other you know valuable social anchors, and you know, you see an increase in depression, uh, you know, a decline in marriage rates. A growth in kids growing up in poor households. And you even see uh, an increase in what Anne Case and Angus Deaton have referred to as deaths of despair. So, you know, premature deaths uh, having to do with drug and alcohol addiction and other sort of um, avoidable causes of death. So, you see a kind of just uh, a lot of social disarray in places where work disappears. And when I say when work disappears, I'm using the famous phrase by uh, the sociologist William Julius Julius Wilson. Who wrote about the decline of inner city manufacturing and the uh, impact that had on African Americans in an earlier generation.
0: So along with Deaton and Case, his co-author, and Wilson, the great social scientist Bruce Springsteen would agree with you too, I suppose.
1: Uh, Yes, I I haven't studied his work as closely, but I know others know it well.
0: Yeah, I know it pretty well. So um, I spent much of my college period studying more Springsteen and less economics and probably I should have. <laughs>
1: what about the role of unions? Sure. So the third, I've talked about two forces, which are you know technological change, particularly automation and globalization, but institutional changes have been quite important. And all of these things interact, I want to underscore, they're not, uh, cannot be separate, uh, completely separated. We've seen a dramatic fall in the representation of workers in, in labor unions, in the private sector, uh, and that's both within and outside of manufacturing. Um, in addition, the real value of the minimum wage has you know consistently eroded except for brief periods where democratic presidents managed to raise it, but the federal minimum wage at present is at about the same real value as it was in 1950, 70 years ago, right? You would expect it, you would hope it would actually just rise at least at the rate of kind of Productivity growth, but no. (laughs) Um, uh, So, and then there's been almost no progress in any of our kind of social protections or regulatory apparatus that, uh, you know, help improve the quality of work. So the Fair Labor Standards Act, the Civil Rights Act, uh, the Occupational Safety and Health Act. And so social policy has largely been at a standstill in the United States for at least four decades uh, when many other uh, advanced nations have sort of improved on these dimensions and the the uh, institutions that most directly protected workers or supported workers have uh, eroded uh, tremendously. So workers have less bargaining power, even at profitable firms, uh, even you know in places where uh, there's lots of resources potentially to go around.
0: So in terms of the future of work, a focus of your Eli lecture is what you call the barbell effect.
1: Can you explain what that means? Sure. And i had alluded to this earlier. So if you, if you sort of arrange occupations uh, on a kind of a line from lowest paid to highest paid on average. So the lowest pay would be kind of personal services and agriculture. Highest pay would be professional, technical, and managerial work. The occupational distribution in the US and in many other industrialized countries increasingly looks like a barbell with growing weight on either end of the bar. On the right-hand side, we have increased employment in- professional and technical managerial work. These are highly educated, high-paid, creative jobs, and uh, they're growing. It's, it's great news for people who have college degrees. At the bottom, we have a lot of personal services, food service, cleaning, security, entertainment, recreation, home health home care, home health aides. Those are typically low-educated jobs. They pay low wages. They're insecure. And uh, the people who are doing them are often using what you might call somewhat generic skill sets. They're not highly specialized. Many people could do food service or cleaning or security uh, with a small, you know, a modest amount of training, which means those jobs tend not to pay well because the, the skills are potentially abundant. What has declined is jobs in the middle, in uh, production and operative positions, partly having to do technology, partly having to do a trade, and in uh, administrative support, clerical and sales many of those were middle-educated, middle-wage jobs done by people with a high school education or some college, not necessarily a four-year degree. And they uh, were the kind of middle-class occupations for people who weren't either in high pay manufacturing or didn't, weren't entering the professions. And their decline has caused this kind of polarization, the movement of the mass out to the two ends. And so increasingly, we have one group of people who were, you know, doing interesting work and being well remunerated, another, a growing set that are in relatively economically insecure positions that don't have much of a career ladder, right? Once you, you know, if you're working in food service or doing checkout or cleaning, you know, after six months or something, you might reach peak productivity. Your experience isn't especially valuable to the employer. You don't get that much better at it. Uh, and that means they won't tend to pay you more over the life cycle because you're just competing with someone else who could do the job, come in young, and within a few months be as good as you are. And that's not the case in the professions, for example.
0: We had talked about a geographic component to this, and we talked about it in terms of you know your work on the China shock and these rural communities. But is there also a geographic component for what's going on in urban areas? And can you explain a little bit what job opportunities look like for people without a college education 50 years ago in urban areas and compare that to what they look like now. And how is this different from rural areas or maybe even sort of um, suburban or small urban areas, like for example, Freehold, New Jersey, the hometown in the Bruce Springsteen song?
1: Yeah. So thanks for that question. This is really, it was a subject of the 2019 Eli lecture to which you referred. And uh, that. uh, work studies, sort of the geography of polarization. And what I kind of discovered that very much surprised me was that um, most of the middle-skill work done by non-college workers was found in cities, particularly in offices to some degree in production work 50 years ago. And there was a kind of distinct urban occupational structure where people without high levels of formal education would move into middle-skill jobs and get paid relatively well. Arguably, they were working alongside you know, uh, highly uh, educated workers in offices, managers in factories and so on. And um, and that was a, a distinct set of opportunities. So wages are higher in cities. Uh, probably they're higher to compensate for the cost of living, but employers must find it productive to be there, otherwise they could move somewhere else. And both college and non-college workers seem to earn considerably more in cities. After the 1980s, we see a change. The urban wage differential for highly educated remain steep and get somewhat steeper. The urban wage differential for non-college workers actually gets shallower and shallower. So it's almost flat, meaning that the difference between a urban worker with a college not without a college degree and a suburban worker or, uh, you know, even a rural worker is not very large anymore. That has happened as the job structure has changed in urban areas. Those that middle skill skill stratum of work, that office work, the factory work has eroded such that increasingly cities are bifurcated in the way I described earlier. On the one hand, you have lots of people in finance and management and technical fields. And then most of the non-college workers are basically doing service work. They're driving cars, they're fixing buildings, they're constructing things. Uh, They are serving food, they're working at bars. And they're no longer kind of working at the same establishments or you know, jointly producing uh, with those uh, you know, highly educated workers. And so the polarization that we see in aggregate in many senses, to a substantial degree, reflects the kind of unwinding of this special urban labor market where non-college workers moved into higher paying jobs that had more upward mobility. That is what has declined.
0: So we haven't talked about... The widening racial and ethnic wage gaps is what you're describing in urban areas, linked to this widening racial or ethnic wage gap as well.
1: Yeah, this is a question I worked on for the MIT uh, Task Force on the Work of the Future, one of the briefs we wrote, and it turns out that that polarization, uh, urban polarization, decline of the middle has been even more pronounced for minority workers, and of course minorities are overrepresented. In urban areas, so blacks and Hispanics, and so we see a greater hollowing out among those groups. They're overrepresented in cities, and their relative wages have fallen by more. So, in general, the polarization has been and has been adverse, particularly for minorities, because they tended to be uh, uh, more represented in the middle. The, even to the the good jobs for you know often uh, a highly educated minority household might be. Uh, someone working in manufacturing or doing office work. And so those jobs have been, uh, you know, have substantially uh, declined. And then that was particularly true in urban areas. And then within urban areas, it's particularly true for minorities in those areas. So uh, these all point, unfortunately, in the same direction uh, and not a good direction.
0: What's the role of immigration here? I imagine immigrants tend to settle more in urban or metro areas than in rural areas. Although I know also there is a tendency For people from one area or region to follow others, so for example, Utica, New York, has an overrepresentation of a particular um, ethnic or um, national group. Um, What's going on with the future of work and immigration?
1: Yeah, so I I looked at this question in the sort of uh, the urban context, and I found this kind of polarization and the decline of middle skill work is is Pretty prevalent among all groups, among minorities, among non minorities, among native born, among foreign born. It's more pronounced among immigrants and minorities than among you know, native born Caucasians, but it appears to be comparable, similar in any case. So it's not that immigration per se is pushing uh, one group out and another group in or anything of the sort. It seems to be uh, fairly pervasive. So I don't see immigration as a cause. Uh, of the phenomenon I'm of describing, but certainly immigrants have been affected or even you could say afflicted by it.
0: So David, you've done an amazing amount of comprehensive research on these issues. And what we've been discussing was what was happening pretty much before the pandemic. Those are the data that you have available. Do you have any sense of how all these results might've changed over the past year and a half? With the disruptions to the labor market due to the pandemic, and if that's the case, how durable do you think those changes will be? Um, or, put differently, will the pandemic affect the work of the future?
1: Yeah, great question. And, and the data are coming in very fast. <laughs> uh, certainly, the pandemic is, you know, has created all kinds of surprises and paradoxes uh, that we're only beginning to understand. So, you know, I anticipated that when the pandemic ended—not that it's fully ended. There would be uh, uh, excess labor supply, many people wanting their jobs back in urban areas and those jobs not coming back because of a decline in tourism, a decline in commuting some of that's happening that's happening in Manhattan, but to a large extent we're in a period of labor scarcity where people are fewer people are working, but those who are working are demanding higher wages and worker activism uh, is uh, you know is at a, a post war high and just as important um the uh, wages are rising at the bottom of, of the wage distribution much faster than in other places. So we're all aware that inflation is growing, so it eats up a lot of that. But real wages and, you know, food service and hospitality are rising about 12% per year. Inflation is running about 6% per year. Um, so that's a big change. I don't know how durable it will be, but I'm hoping it will endure because this scarcity creates some forces for rebalancing for rebalancing the bargaining power of uh, different groups and for giving an opportunity for employers to have to work harder to attract people to do jobs that are not glamorous but need to be done and uh you know which could potentially pay higher wages it will make them cost more right it will cost more to go out to restaurants it will cost more to go to hotels if you go to a hotel have you been to one if you've been to one recently you'll notice that they don't typically clean your room every day anymore unless you want to pay extra for that as a reflection of uh, the change, but at least that aspect of it, I view as a positive, the labor scarcity.
0: So David, the title of this episode is The Future of Work. Now, The Future of Work is not just determined by economic forces, but political forces as well. What kind of policies could be put in place to help sort of the missing middle? the people that you described as no longer having opportunities for good middle-class jobs. Are there things that the government could do to help that? Or is that something where the economic forces are just too strong and the government really couldn't buck that trend?
1: Uh, no, there are definitely things that that we can do uh, collectively. And you know that's not just a hypothetical, because if we compare ourselves to other Industrialized countries that face the same forces of technological change, globalization, rising education levels, uh, shrinking, uh, you know, low falling birth rates, um, they've done much differently, and the degree of inequality of earnings and opportunity that we see uh, in other high-income countries is much lower than it is in the United States. So, you know, what could we do in the U.S.? Well, you could sort of think of kind of three buckets of policies. One are things about skills, in investing in people to allow them to get better jobs. Of course, we need to do that, but that's a long-term solution. It's not going to do it on its own. Another thing we can do is you know, tax and transfer. That's economists' favorite thing to do. Um, I think that has limited scope. Uh, people don't want to lose their jobs and just receive a check in its place. Um, that doesn't make people feel good about the work they're doing. A third is essentially trying to intervene to improve the quality of work. How do we do that? Uh, some of it is through you know, minimum wage regulations. Some of it is through labor standards, expectations about you know, is health insurance uh, expected? Do you get paid vacation and sick leave? Um, some of that will cause you know will create costs. employers will respond by having to make those jobs more productive. Um, and then some of it has to do with policy that we use to foster investment. Uh, for example, if we, you know, if the Biden administration passes the Build Back Better bill, that will actually create a lot of middle-class work uh, in retrofitting the United States for, you know, a new energy transmission system. For example, supporting childcare work and a variety of things. So, we shouldn't think that these things are out of our hands. There are market forces and they have a lot of uh, leverage, but we also shape them to an important degree, and we even shape the direction of technological change. By creating incentives and the technologies that we get that affect work so much, they don't just show up because people sitting in a lab bench go Eureka. Uh, They are, they face incentives for what to develop, what the R and D systems, the U S support, what universities work on. And so there are many ways that we shape, not just the distribution of income, but the set of opportunities and skills that are needed and created uh, for people throughout the economy.
0: Well, this is one of the most important questions facing the country, and I very much appreciate you sharing your insights and drawing on your expertise and your research to discuss this with me today, David. So, thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure speaking.
0: This has been Accountifact Chats. To learn more about Accountifact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.accountafact.org. You can subscribe on our site to our newsletter that will let you know when we publish new memos and new podcast episodes. Please feel free to share this podcast and our memos with friends, colleagues, and on social media. Accountafact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.